Let's open our Bibles to 2 Thessalonians 1, verses 1 through 12, the first chapter of Paul's second letter to the church in Thessalonica. I encourage you to open your Bibles to that passage. It's 1175 of your pew Bibles. And as you're turning there, I want to just give you a little introduction to what we're going to find in this letter. We've just concluded 1 Thessalonians last week, and um, when you're shifting from, say, 1 Corinthians to 2 Corinthians, 1 Thessalonians to 2 Thessalonians, same with the letters to Timothy, you might wonder, what happened in between? Um, Kind of like shifting from the Old Testament to the New Testament. It's really good to have some understanding of what is called the intertestamental period, what happened for the people of God, Israel, from Malachi to Matthew. And so you might wonder what happened in between Paul's writing of his first letter, which was to a healthy, thriving in many ways church in Thessalonica. They needed some correction on um, some theological matters, but it was a church full of brotherly love. Paul said, of brotherly love, I do not have to instruct you because they're, they're doing well in that category of ministry. So how are things going now as he writes the second letter? And rather than reinventing the wheel, I'll just read the ESV's introduction to 2 Thessalonians from my Bible software. I don't, I don't know if it's in your pew Bibles, the little description there. I don't think it is. But here's what uh, the ESV um, in my, my Bible software introduces the letter with. It says, this letter from the Apostle Paul was probably written shortly after the first letter of the ch- to the church in Thessalonica. So it's not as though there has been 20 years of ministry unfolding and all kinds of changes have happened in the church in Thessalonica. It was probably written very shortly after his first letter. Paul had been boasting of them to other churches, telling of their faith and their love for each other in the face of persecution. So that's a little summary of what we're going to find in the first chapter and really throughout the letter of Second Thessalonians. We'll see in the first verse that the letter was not written by Paul alone, but was written by Silas, here called by his Latin name, Silvanus, and Timothy as well. Um, you know, sometimes we kind of just chalk everything up to the Apostle Paul as we're reading these letters, but uh, he had help in writing these, these theological tomes with, in this case, Uh, Silas and Timothy who were his co-laborers in the gospel and um, having already prayed let's let's now look at the text 2nd Thessalonians chapter 1. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought always to give thanks to God for you brothers as is right because your faith is growing abundantly and the love of everyone of every one of you for one another is increasing therefore we ourselves boast about you in the churches of god for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring this is evidence of the righteous judgment of god that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of god for which you are also suffering since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus 
They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. A wonderful, powerful passage about Christian ministry in the face of persecution. One of the themes of the Bible, especially the ministry of Jesus, but also seen in this text tonight, is the upside-down nature of the kingdom of God. What do we mean when we say the upside-down nature of the kingdom of God? By upside-down, I mean that God does not always do things in a way that are what we would expect, that God will so often turn the tables, you might say, to use a cliche, and do the opposite of what we would expect to happen with our worldly understanding. Of course, the best example of this in history and in the scriptures is that, that a person could be delivered from death into eternal life through the death of God's own son. And so that could seem surprising, I think, at some times to people who are hearing the gospel for the first time, that, that we're delivered from death by the death of another person, the God-man, Jesus Christ. So his death gives us life. Jesus also said, um, teaching on the upside-down nature of the kingdom of God, that the first will be last and the last will be first, which is an implied command that the Christian would desire to be humble instead of always needing to be the one in charge, the one who is out front. The Christian would be like Christ, taking on the form of a servant, willing to serve, willing to be last, and in the kingdom of God, this is ultimately then to be first. But one area where we see the upside-down nature of the kingdom of God is in this matter of persecution. And we see the upside-down nature of it in two ways in this passage in 2 Thessalonians 1. So the first is that the Thessalonian church is described as a thriving church that's being persecuted. It's a healthy church that is suffering. The second way we see the upside-down nature of God's kingdom in this passage is that those who are in power now and, and are using their power to persecute the church will be condemned at the final judgment. These people who seem on top of the world, in authority, who seem um, it would be impossible to usurp them, um, will be one day driven out of the presence of God, um, even given an eternal punishment, which was the passage that we just read. So firstly, focusing on the church that is thriving despite persecution. Paul said of that church that their faith is growing abundantly and the love of God, the love of everyone is increasing. And if you stop right there and don't continue with the rest of the letter of 2 Thessalonians, you would say it must be smooth sailing at that church in Thessalonica. That's often how we think of a healthy church that would be described in this way. Love 
increasing, faith growing abundantly, we would think, wow, it must just be a real nice time to to go and participate, join up with that church in Thessalonica. But then Paul continues, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. So it's the difficulty of ministry that is revealing the strength of their faith. Isn't this so often the case in our lives, in our relationships, even in a church at times where we have something difficult to endure through? We can think of the pandemic that occurred a few years ago where we have um, an obstacle to overcome uh, the, the faith, the love, the unity of a church is either revealed to be wanting and lacking or it's revealed to be genuine, spirit-filled, a gift of God that is, is present and being used and even visible among a church. All of this is right in line with the teaching of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount where he says in Matthew 5, at the conclusion of the Beatitudes, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And so Jesus says there will be a reward in heaven for those who are persecuted, but to understand the beatitude more fully, we could see that there's already a blessing in this life for the person who is persecuted. It's not just a future blessing, but there's also something that God will be doing in the heart, in the life, and the, the spiritual life of the person who is enduring through suffering. How does that happen? How is a believer or a church blessed through persecution? Romans chapter 5 tells us where the Apostle Paul writes to the Roman church, not only so, but we also rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope. And hope does not disappoint us because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. So this passage in Romans describes what's happening in the church in Thessalonica that this persecution, this suffering, is producing character, perseverance, character, and hope. So it's not just as though we wait for the blessing we would one day receive if somebody says false um, accusations against the Christian. Uh, yeah, this happens all the time in our culture. You Christians are full of hate for people who think differently than you. We, we know that if you're truly a believer in Christ, you're full of love for people. And that's why you would want to tell them the truth about Christ and the right way to live. But when we are falsely accused of, of hatred and even derided or scorned by our culture, it's not just as though there's a future blessing in heaven someday, but there is the immediate blessing of suffering that produces stronger faith perseverance, character, and hope. Reading this passage from Romans and then reading this description of the Thessalonian church makes me think of the movie Rocky. It's a, quite a film. 
and I haven't seen it for a long time, but I was just recalling it and thinking of a, a story of perseverance. That's the whole point of the movie Rocky. Now, the movie is a great film, not just because um, it's about this boxer who, who almost wins the fight against the heavyweight champion of the world, but it's a great film because of the, how a love story is really woven into the storyline as well. So Rocky, while he's training to fight Apollo Creed, is also dealing with a kind of a complicated relationship with his girlfriend, Adrian. And the, the culmination of the film, I don't think I'm ruining too much for you if I sort of give away what happens in the final scene. Um, in fact, even if I do give it away, it's still a great movie because good movies could even last through um, knowing even what happens at the end. But in that final scene where um, you find out if Rocky won the fight or not, you know, they're, they're going to give the, the judge's decision. Is it Apollo Creed or is it Rocky? It actually doesn't even matter as much to Rocky at that point if he's won or lost. He's just looking for Adrian. He's calling out to Adrian, you know, saying that he loves her. She's screaming out that she loves him. And it's really their love for one another that's ultimately at the heart of the story and not just the, the boxing match exactly, but, but it's a story of a man and a woman um, in love, who are growing in love with one another, who are persevering through poverty, through this struggle to make ends meet. Their perseverance and courage endures through the uncertainty of what would happen in this boxing match where he could get very badly injured and she's nervous about that. And the same thing happens in the church. The same thing happens in a church where there is some kind of suffering that there's a focus on love where what the Apostle Paul wrote of the Thessalonian church would hopefully be true also that our faith would be growing abundantly and the love that we have one for another would be increasing and so often this happens during times of difficulty um, sort of in, in the trenches, you might say. Like there, There's other things I've, I've been involved with in ministry where I've come alongside other pastors to, to deal with things in other churches, and it's really those pastors who I really have a strong connection with still, even years later, because we had to work something out and, and endure and, and stay focused and serve the Lord even when it got really difficult at times. So may this be the case also in, in our own church when we in, experience difficulty. It might not be persecution like what's experienced in early Rain Covenant Church in China or uh, certainly a church in a place like North Korea. The Lord at times will bring us through difficulties to refine our faith that we might have perseverance, character, and hope. So notice how all, the promise of blessing for the persecuted church is not just in the life to come. That's one of the themes um, of First and Second Thessalonians. There is a final judgment, which we'll get to in a moment, but then there's also the blessing of the church already today. Suffering with Christ produces something in us today. And so we should ask, are we raising a next generation of young people who have this perseverance, character, and hope, who can endure through persecution, through difficulty, through hard times, 
Are we raising a generation of believers who will flee from persecution because they're worried about their comfort being taken away or their reputation being stained? Or are we raising a generation of believers who will have all of the attributes here of the Thessalonian church who are increasing in faith and has, have love even that's abounding towards other believers and even towards the very neighbors that are persecuting them? Will the next generation of Christians rejoice and be glad if they are ignored, if they are derided, if they lose friendships for following Jesus faithfully? Uh, one reason that this passage is so upside down, I think, especially to American Christians, is that we place so much importance on our rights that we, at times, I think, might consider the loss of our rights which would be a bad thing, to be the worst thing that could ever happen to us. So it gets so much attention, um, even turning on at times uh, the radio, a radio station where you might go from hearing about uh, a sermon, and I don't even know what station it is, but at times it'll come on to how we've got to get really worked up about our rights being taken away because we're Christians in America and it's happening. <laughs> you know, this sort of angst, anger, even a, a, a real desire for, at times, revenge is some of what I hear in some of those political kinds of approaches. This idolatry of rights can, at times, I think, make us ill-prepared to endure through suffering, as God would want us to. So, an idol, the pastor Tim Keller, great pastor, he said, an idol is when a good thing becomes an ultimate thing. An idol is when a good thing becomes an ultimate thing. And it is possible that we would idolize political rights so much that our ability to suffer for the gospel would be almost ruined because we would just be so upset that we can't do something that we used to do or would be so worried that that would be taken away from us. Brothers and sisters, we need to remember the Thessalonian church, um, the Chinese church, the North Korean church, that is glorifying Christ. And they don't have any rights. It's glorifying God. That is growing abundantly in faith and their love for everyone and for one another is increasing. That was happening here in Thessalonica. I hope that that's what would happen for a church like ours during a time of suffering. Paul commends the Thessalonian church for valuing what really matters, faith in Jesus, harmony in the church. So the other surprise in the text is that these persecutors of the church that have so much power now, they will be judged by God and they will suffer punishment in the life to come. These who seem so um, unassailable, um, impenetrable, undefeatable. These will be people who are judged by God one day. All of this sounds kind of obvious to us today because we're so far removed from the situation, but, but to people who were living under the thumb of those oppressive neighbors or rulers, that would have been a welcome truth. Um, another thing that we, we did as a family this week is you can watch on YouTube virtual reality reconstructions of Roman cities really, really interesting. Maybe it's kind of a nerdy thing that I like to do, but 
um, what would the city of Rome look like in the day of Constantine? There are computer reconstructions of the city and it was absolutely stunning what these cities would have looked like. Marble streets, uh, temples everywhere, spectacular statues, the Colosseum, the Circus Maximus, theaters all around with columns surrounding them, just absolutely stunning architecture that represents the great power of this empire. And so think of somebody just living in a dirt-floored hut, (laughs) comparing themselves to that glorious, in the worldly sense, city of Rome. And you would almost think, how could could that person ever ever come under a judgment? Like, um, all of the worldly symbols and signs would just be that that person has got it all and and would be... um, almost above kind of being corrected in a way. But obviously the Apostle Paul confronts that false idea of um, this unending power of the Roman Empire um, in verses 5 through 10 of 2 Thessalonians, just rereading what he wrote. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels and flaming fire, so here he's establishing there is something above that worldly authority. We need to hear that too. There is something above the authority of President Xi of China. There is something above the authority of our president or of Vladimir Putin. There is someone above those authorities. That is Christ with his mighty angels in flaming fire. That's what that's meant to evoke, the power of Christ. Who will inflict vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus? They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints. And so there's a a glorification of the saints, of the meek, of the followers of Jesus at the last day. We're those who marveled. Um, He will be marveled at among all those who have believed because our testimony to you, says Paul, was believed. So this could seem a little confusing. I had to study this passage actually pretty hard this week to, to get accurately at the, the teaching that we have, particularly in the opening sentences of what Paul wrote. Because he says there that this is evidence of the righteous judgment of God and then goes on to say, you will be ushered into the kingdom of God and God will repay affliction to those who afflict you. So persecution itself seems to be evidence of the righteous judgment of God. How does that work? Um, again, it's, it's kind of a, a tricky thing to discern. How is persecution evidence of God's righteous judgment? Wouldn't you think the opposite? Wouldn't you think that, that for the Thessalonians, who have been, they would have been tempted to think persecution for them is giving supporting evidence to the claim that 
that God is not righteous and God does not judge equitably because they're suffering while those who are evil seem to be thriving. To interpret Paul's teaching here, we can look at, again, Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount where he told his listeners that you should rejoice at being mistreated for your faith because that's also how they treated generations of faithful prophets that the Lord had sent to them. So a sinful generation will reject a faithful prophet and that not only indicts the generation and is evidence of their sin and their destruction, which is coming, but it's also, the persecution is evidence of the faithfulness of those who are following the Lord. So when this clash happens, it gives evidence that that there is a spiritual battle that's unfolding in the world and in this world we may suffer, but all of it is evidence of something that is to come, that is actually the reversal of that judgment where the saints are lifted up and those who were afflicting God's people are judged. So, Uh, maybe describing it another way. Uh, The Apostle Paul told his listeners that you should rejoice at being mistreated because um, it reveals their sin and it probably could also reveal the genuineness of your faith and how you're really living for God. And at times, um, Christians should be careful not to unnecessarily offend. But I think that, that at times we can almost rejoice in challenging people who we know are outside the will of God and when such a person would hate us or scorn us that could almost confirm in uh, in us that we're on the right track Um, at times I've mentioned that that I've been criticized even as a pastor by other Christian reform ministers and and sometimes if I'm criticized by a pastor who is teaching what is false I'm I'm almost confirmed in a way that I'm on the right track <laughs> and, and we should be careful not to just use that to baptize everything or every every idea I have or everything I say but the persecution itself can reveal where you're 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 heading or where you know sort of the status of your your life is um, maybe using a a little teaching from C.S. Lewis to explain this further so that this could be um, understood more fully. C.S. Lewis once taught very profoundly. He said, heaven and hell work backwards. Here's what he meant by that. He said, the person who by God's grace is bound for heaven will start to display the characteristics of a heavenly person already. So heaven works backwards into our lives. And he doesn't just mean that in an abstract philosophical way. He means that the person who is going to be in heaven, God reveals that in our lives we have faith in Christ and we start to, to be a more heavenly-minded person. Like the Apostle Paul wrote in Colossians 1, have your mind and your heart fixed on Christ who is seated there. And so you'll start to look more and more like Jesus. So heaven works backwards into your life that you would love the Lord, you would love to worship God, You would love Christian fellowship. You would love serving God even when it's really difficult. Heaven works backwards into our lives, and so does hell. He says hell works backwards as well. And the person who is bound for separation from God, well, what else would they do but 
try to separate other people from God and from one another. That's essentially what persecution aims to achieve, a separation of people from God or from one another. And so that's a case where hell is working backwards, where people who are separated from God are actually spreading that that work of separation um, among people wherever they go. So in describing the judgment of God on unregenerate sinners, Paul gives us, in this passage, um, Professor Jeff Wyma says, the most vivid and sobering portrayal of hell that he gives anywhere in his letters. And I would agree with with Dr. Wyma on that regard. We had here a sobering description of hell. And as we hear about things like eternal punishment, the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might, as we hear about those very serious things, uh, we should ask, what happens in our heart when we hear about that? About hell? About God's judgment? Instead of hearing Paul's words with any ounce of, of glee, that God would send the bad guys away, that they would get their comeuppance, the Christian today should hear this sobering description of hell and respond with a desire for evangelism to to speak to connect with people who are are bound for that destination if god doesn't change their heart and turn them towards jesus Um, john piper once taught that that one of the greatest motivators for our evangelism should be our remembrance that hell is real And so there's the positive reason for evangelism, that we want people to experience a life with God through Christ. But then we also have kind of the negative force that we, out of love for our neighbors, don't want them to experience this description, the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. So hell is the destination for those who do not know God. Therefore, let's make God known. Everlasting suffering is the future of the person who does not believe the testimony of the scriptures about Jesus. Therefore, let's make a compelling case with our lives and our words that would inspire such people to believe. Did you notice the criteria of the one who is sent away from God's presence? It's, it's the person who has not believed their testimony. It's the person who I'll see if I could find it here again in the passage. The person who has not obeyed the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, who does not know God, this is verse 8, and has not obeyed the gospel of our Lord Jesus. And so, what is the implied command of something like that? Is to make Jesus known and to encourage people Follow the Lord Jesus Christ. Trust in him. Obey his gospel. And in closing, we find Paul's blessing on the Thessalonian church. May this be true of us. To this end, we also pray for you. This would be a good prayer for our church. That our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Let's pray.